The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. Well, with the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement looming, we have some very interesting new books about the history of the Troubles in Northern Ireland, on this island indeed, coming out at present. And the latest one is from Gerodo Fuelon. It's called A Broad Church, Volume 2, The Provisional IRA in the Republic of Ireland between 1980 and 1989. And it is full of some fascinating detail. Gerodo, thank you very much for joining us. How much sneaking regard do you think was there for the IRA during the 1980s, despite the widespread condemnation in the Republic of the organisation? I think I think far more than, you know, has publicly been acknowledged or that I think most people would, would be aware of, you know, um, looking at this, looking at the 1980s and, and the 70s before that, um, just taking simple things like looking at the, the kind of the prison population, people who serve prison sentences for either membership of the IRA or you know, things linked to it, like allowing their their land to be used for training camps and so on. It's it sort of defies any you know traditional kind of class description or or you know geographical description or anything like that. It's it's quite a diverse representation. Because you detail incidents which many of us may have forgotten, such as Guardian Dundalk saluting a tricolour draped coffin for an IRA funeral. That's right. Yeah, and it, I mean, even at the time, that was that was highly controversial. It led to a, a debate in the Dáil about it, where Minister for Justice Jerry Collins had to, you know, effectively say that this was a a long-standing tradition for Gardaí to salute coffins that had the tricolour, regardless of you know whose coffin that was or or you know how they died and so on. But you know that that really that was 1988. That got really um got picked up again the following year when you had um the IRA, where, where they shot two senior RUC officers just over the border in South Armagh um, and led to, you know, as, as listeners might be aware, a long-standing tribunal, the Smithic Tribunal, 10 years ago, which looked into alleged collusion um, in Dundalk Air Station. And then if you go back to the start of the decade in your book, I was taken with something I don't remember, but the funeral of Kerry GA legend John Joe Sheehy. Yeah, I mean, this, just going back to your first question, I think that's the idea of uh, sneaking regarders, or, or what I would say is like a very broad spectrum of, you know, views towards the IRA on the, let's say, the positive side, so ranging from actual support to sort of toleration. John Joshihi, you know, Kerry GAA football legend, but was also all throughout his life an unapologetic provisional IRA supporter. He had been in the IRA himself, anti-treaty. Um, but, you know, I think like him being a perfect example in that when he died, there was TDs present, you know, all TDs, the, the, the sort of the, the, the golden elite of the GAA was present. Um, and, and that's it. They interacted in him, with him in, in different ways. You know, he wasn't just, let's say, a, a one dimensional character. So I think that's that could have been said of a lot of people who were active Republicans at the time. They, you know, they were known by neighbours or, or others that they interacted with for different reasons. And indeed, what was also striking, the shots were fired over his coffin by members of the IRA, despite the fact that an Irish army officer was there, the real Irish army, as the Taoiseach's representative. Yeah, again, another um, another one that caused a lot of controversy in the Dáil. He was, that officer was there as the official representative of Taoiseach Charlie Hawhey. Um, the, the army kicked up a big fuss, understandably, about that. Said they've, they, you know, by using that that commandant um, to attend, he disgraced the army. 
but um Gardaí as well, you know, were present during this um, the procession from the hospital to the, the graveyard and stood back and allowed the provisional IRA to actually act as the official stewards for the funeral. Um, allegedly were present when the shots were fired but didn't move in, probably, you know, wisely because that could have led to a big clash. But um, one thing I, I know in the book is the British were, were well aware of the developments and the controversy around this and they were, they were quite blasé about it. They said, well, ha, he has to please the backwoodsmen of the West, you know, so... He had to do what he had to do, in a sense. Okay, there's lots more in this. And let's talk a little bit as well about the criminality of the 1980s, because that was a period in which the IRA, to raise money, moved from bank robbery into kidnappings. I think most famously, the Ben Dunn kidnapping. Yeah, and, you know, the the bank robberies, they, they declined pretty steeply after the late 1970s, a variety of things like time locks and, and alarms in, in banks and greater protection of convoys, um, you know, um, was the cause of that. But, yeah, so they moved into kidnapping was a, was a big one. Ben Dunn was, as you say, probably the most famous. Also, the one that was carried off without a hitch, in a sense. You know, the IRA kidnapped him, held him for several days, there was rumours of a large payout um, made. They then decided to maybe go all in on this as a fundraising tactic. It ended in tragedy in, in 1983 with um, the death of a soldier and a, and a Garda, a trainee Garda. Uh, and, and I think that with, with Shergar and the absolute you know, disastrous publicity around the, the Shergar kidnapping and the racehorse, that, it started to die out then. But they, they, I think they were, the 80s, you could say, was a far more diverse time for them in terms of their you know, attempts to, to raise money for their campaign. And of course then that money was used for the purchase of arms and in particular the shipments that came in from Libya. Just how much difference could those have actually made to the outcome of the Troubles? I think if if it had gone according to plan, yeah, a frightening difference to be honest. You know, um, the weapons that were coming in, if you consider, for example, in the 1970s, the largest IRA shipment um, that was intercepted, what that was probably you know, arranged in the 1970s was five tonnes of weaponry. It was 10 tonnes of weaponry on the Marita Anne, you know, which famously was, was um, stopped on coming from Boston with Martin Ferris and several others on board. So that was five tonnes, 10 tonnes. What was coming in from Libya was the, the shipment that was captured was 150 tonnes. Um, what actually landed was somewhere between 120 and 150 because several shipments had already got in. Um, you know, you're, you're talking about almost the equivalent of the Irish Defence Force at the time in terms of obviously not vehicles but other armaments. But the IRA didn't have enough people to use the guns, did they? They, they didn't. No, they didn't. I mean, one of the, the consequences of um, in the 1970s, they slimmed down their organisation lot. They were waiting to get all of the weapons in from Libya. It was just, you know, no one was actually aware of this. Not even the most of the leadership of the IRA was aware of what was coming in. They were waiting until it all landed before, you know, some kind of offensive and, and the interception of the final shipment and that it was no longer um, a surprise. But what you did end up happening, you know, people I spoke to, and this became a, you know, the IRA considered this a problem in later years, was that they had so many guns that people were actually discarding the guns after using them once because obviously they didn't want to be arrested, you know, two years later with a gun that could be connected to several other um, crimes. So it actually was almost, you know, it, it disadvantaged them in a way because they were just, they were much more lackadaisical with them. Whereas in, in the 1970s and earlier in the 80s, they were, they were like gold dust. So they were very protective of their weaponry. 
Of course, the irony of all that is, is at the same time as they had access to the weaponry is when politics took more of a hold within Sinn Féin and an increasing influence for those Sinn Féin members, many of whom had, of course, dual membership with the IRA. That's right, yeah. I mean, I think the, the hunger strikes obviously was, was a, a, a watershed in terms of um, you know, changing strategies within, within the IRA and Sinn Féin. Um, it did lead, you know, a lot of people got involved in, in the IRA and Sinn Féin because of the hunger strikes, a younger generation, North and South. Um, and people in the South in particular, traditional Republicans, let's say people who had been involved before the Troubles, were very wary and sceptical of this influx of people. They they referred to them derisively as, as H-block Republicans, you know, that, that they weren't sort of committed and, and felt vindicated then because when 1986 Sinn Féin voted to... Um, to recognise all air in Leinster House, you know, and, and to, to take their seats in, in the Dáil if elected. And people would, would point to, you know, 1981 as being that kind of critical point when people came into the, to the movement who didn't have, let's say, the same, you know, fundamental ideology as before. Who weren't as pure. And maybe just to finish, yeah. Grodo Fáilán, I mean, that's obviously an interesting point as well, that for many people who now maybe weren't even born at that stage or were young at that stage, this book shows the history of where modern-day Sinn Féin was rooted. And it's not that long ago, really, is it? No, no, it's not. Um, interesting to see as well, you know, from reading the book or, or reading, you know, or watching documentaries or anything about that era was, you know, um, how how they sort of became rooted as well in the South. You know, um, the anti-drugs campaign, for example, in Dublin in, in the 1980s, where you had local members of the IRA and Sinn Féin in, in inner city Dublin getting involved, um, like people would point to that as being, a, you know, the exact dividends of, of their electoral success in Dublin in the 1990s and onwards was because of that involvement. It's a fascinating study. A broad church, volume two, the provisional IRA in the Republic of Ireland from 1980 to 1989. Garoda thank you very much for being with us here on The Last Word. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today, F-